Hey folks, thanks for listening. We've got another bonus episode for you, and this is something very special indeed. Last time we delved into the history of history podcasting, and now we are giving you the full interview with none other than the host of Hardcore History, Dan Carlin. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. All right, folks, I'm B.T. Neuberger of the podcast Dead Ideas, and with no further ado, here is Dan Carlin. I'm a big fan. I'll forego you the fanboy treatment, because you probably get that a lot, but it's a real treat to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just jump right into it. So the first question that I have for you is uh, you were pretty early into the game for history podcasting. Obviously, you were podcasting before that with Common Sense, your political show. But let's focus on hardcore history. What was history podcasting like at the time when you started hardcore history? What other podcasters were out there on your radar influencing you, if any? Or did your influences come from other places like, say, academic historians, that kind of thing? Uh, I don't know the answer to the question because we didn't pay any attention, to be honest, to what else was out there. It, <laughs> okay. wasn't, it wasn't because we were arrogantly thinking we didn't have to. We simply had our hands full trying try to do our own thing. And as you said, this was, this was the second podcast we had started, so we were doing two podcasts at once. So pretty much all we had time to do was figure out what we were doing. And uh, it, it had always sort of been part of the attraction of podcasting that you had this giant creative white space to work with. So for me, I wasn't looking to be influenced by anyone. I was so excited to have carte blanche in terms of parameters where we could do anything we wanted to, to put in motion thoughts that I'd had for a while. So uh, there was no influence. We were really excited about a chance coming from radio, as I did, to all of a sudden have so much creative uh, room to maneuver. And so that was more what encouraged us to sort of take chances and experiment and, if you will, expand to the boundaries of the limits uh, of the space that we were offered, rather than try. I mean, podcasting was at such an infancy stage at this point. I mean, you have to remember that there are no professional outlets at all. It's all amateurs. Um, and so I think I think everybody, I mean, I'm speaking for everybody here, but I mean, I think everybody was sort of finding their own way. Um, I don't know when the synergy started of different podcasters from different genres uh, sort of touching base with each other, but we're talking 2006 or something like that. 2005 is when our political show debuted. So in 2006, I think everybody was just sort of trying to figure out what they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned your background in radio. So can you tell me a little bit about that and if there were any challenges for you in conceiving of how you were going to do this new show? I don't normally think of a history show as something that just typically comes out on the radio. Did you feel freer to expound, you know, with this new technology podcasting? Uh, yes, and and we'd had people for many years um you know, when you're on the radio, you're speaking to a lot of people, and, and, and some of those people have interesting skill sets. And I ended up meeting some uh, people that were heavily involved in the tech industry in the early 1990s who were talking about, you know, what we're all doing today uh, way back then. And, and so they had put the bug in my head about the possibility to do this someday. 
And uh, because, you know, in the radio business, at least in the talk radio side of it, it's very much like the news business here in the United States, where in order to get promoted, in general, you move from market to market, going to ever larger markets every couple of years. So the 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 career chart has most people going from town to town to town for quite a long time, which did not seem to be anything I was interested in. And the number one market in the United States is New York. And I didn't have any interest in relocating and moving there either. So when people floated this idea to me that we might someday, somehow, be able to put a show on the internet, that it would be global in reach and that you could do it from your home wherever you lived, um, this was something that stayed in my brain. And so over time, when when people would bring up either similar or or really the same idea to me over and over, it would ping that same section of my brain. It was it was not new information even in the mid nineteen nineties when people would bring up the possibility to me. Does that make sense? Sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We sort yeah, of had I an think... inside track to it. Yeah, yeah. I imagine so. You being like in in the not quite in the biz, but in a very tangential biz, like you're in the next room. <laughs> well, and here's the thing: if there was going to be, if, if people were going to migrate from traditional radio to podcasting, it only made sense that people in traditional radio would would begin to hear, if not if not the ideas, then the stirrings and beginnings of of what would become ideas before they happened. And and I was also on the younger side. A lot of my compatriots were about twenty years older than I was, and it wasn't as appealing to them. I think when you're younger, the idea of some new technological outlets and avenues um, is more naturally. If you came to me now with some brand new technology thing, you know, the, the the podcasting as it would relate to podcasters today, I don't know how uh, how receptive I would be today compared to how I was as somebody who was, you know, 28, 29 when I first heard about this stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, can you tell me uh, a little more about the challenges that you faced in starting Hardcore History and developing your style as Hardcore History went along? For example, you're pretty much known today for your super long episodes, but in fact, when you first started, you were doing a lot of very short one-off episodes. Well, we always describe... um the the growth of anybody's podcast not just ours as as a little like watching your favorite television series develop and if you'll go back and and watch the first few episodes of that you'll notice that they're still trying to find you know their formula and the chemistry and all that stuff it's it's a process that takes a few shows as a matter of fact when i speak to new podcasters my advice is always to do your first five shows and then throw them away so that the sixth <laughs> show you do, which to your audience sounds like the first, has really allowed you the chance to learn from five previous shows already. So that was the same with Hardcore History. The first one was about 20 minutes long. And and if, if you wanted to try to boil down right now, based on what we do now, what it was, it was simply one of the elements that make up the whole now. And that was the whole show. So we had that one part that we thought was going to be attractive to people who already knew about history and based on well really years of audience feedback and whatnot you'd find out what worked what didn't work what they liked what they didn't like what they needed uh, and it turned out they needed more story so that's how the the pieces ended up getting longer we ended up having to include more context we ended up having people show up that didn't know the stories that we were finding all these weird little angles about so slowly but surely you start telling them about the story so they could enjoy the funny little angles you bring up and sort of by default over time in a serendipitous kind of way, uh, you stumble on a formula that, that either works for you, works for the audience, or hopefully works for both of you. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think it was actually 16 minutes. It wasn't even 20 minutes. I, Alexander versus Hitler, I believe. Was the, I think we apologize. I think we apologized the first time we ever did a show over an hour for having the <laughs> audacity to waste your time like that. Well, one thing I was curious about is there was really kind of a movement within history of podcasting around the time that you started getting longer maybe just a little bit before, where other people really started getting into super long-form history podcasts. And you said before that other history podcasts weren't really on your radar so much, but I wonder if there was some kind of like a zeitgeist by that time that was influencing you, like saying like, what people really want here is just like the really long, meaty, dense historical narrative. Is it anything like that? Well, if if it happened that way, it would have happened through the listeners because they were the ones giving us the feedback. I mean, I remember one specifically said, we have pause buttons. You know, why why are you concerned about the time? So it's possible, I suppose, that they were the ones listening to the other history podcasts and just sort of influencing me through them. Uh, but sure. that's where we got the idea from. So I think it's totally possible that, that uh, they represented the zeitgeist and they were giving the same sort of feedback to all the history podcasters, maybe. That makes plenty of sense. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing I was curious about is what, uh, in developing your show, I'm sure there must have been some major events that probably really impacted uh, your show over the years. You've mentioned listener feedback as an obvious big one. Also, I was curious about maybe like being on Joe Rogan, how that kind of helped things develop. Well, if you mean like publicity and 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 spreading the word about listeners, um, well, there there's a lot of things that helped. Uh, in general, going on other people's podcasts was always a good way, especially early on, because the biggest hurdle that podcasters faced before the professional outlets got in was the simple problem of the technical side of it. I mean, most people didn't know how to download a podcast, therefore they're not a podcast listener. The first time they take the time because there's some show that they really care about to learn how to do it, then they're a podcast. Then you can grab those people or vice versa. And so we always felt like unlike, you know, in radio where I came up uh, or in TV news before then, uh, the entire medium was seen as a zero-sum game when it comes to audiences. Um, if they're watching another channel, they're not watching you, and vice versa. So, I mean, in the old days, you didn't even mention the competition for fear of giving them unintended publicity. Whereas in podcasting, listen, you just if you found out about another podcaster, that didn't mean you listened to your favorite podcaster any less. And so a long time ago, a lot of the early podcasters figured out that it wasn't a zero-sum game and that we could all help each other by going on each other's shows. And so uh, Joe Rogan is somebody who I think of as being a um, trendsetter and somebody who sort of led the way on stuff like that. It certainly helped to go on Joe's show. I think I've been on Joe's show four or five times now. Um, but but it was a lot of those kind of things. And, and, and it's hard to know where the biggest jump comes from. I mean, does the biggest jump come from when you go from 500 listeners to 1,000 or when you go from a million... 500,000 to a million 750,000. I mean, it's it's hard to know if, if I, I don't see any before or after moments, but but certainly 
Uh, I used to think that the growth curve was something like you would see a big jump in listenership and then there'd be a plateau for a while. And then something would happen. You'd see another big jump in listenership and then you hit another plateau. I remember Stephen Colbert did an um, impersonation of me doing our history show. <laughs> and he, he put it on his own podcast. And I remember we could see an audience jump when that happened. So there's a lot of those little things. But, but it is sort of a truism of podcasting that what helped is that we could help each other in this struggling sense without hurting each other at the same time. So it wasn't it wasn't the traditional media model. And that really, I think, helped us uh, grow in the early years when it was really hard to get publicity outside of the podcasting world. You know, it was hard to get on television. It was hard to get in the newspapers. But you could get on another person's podcast and they could get on yours. And that helped create a synergy that helped the whole thing. And then when the the big players got involved, mainly as a way to rebroadcast the content they were already putting out on another medium like the television. If ESPN said, hey, you missed SportsCenter tonight, uh, download it on our podcast, and you really wanted to see something from that night, so you took the time to learn how to do it so you could watch that ESPN thing, well, ESPN had inadvertently helped create more audience members for us by educating you on how to do it. So it wasn't even just that we could we could help each other, but even when the traditional media came involved, instead of splintering the audience for all of us, they ended up creating a whole bunch of people that were then savvy enough to download other people's podcasts, too. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break for commercials, and then we'll be back with more Dan Carlin. All right, we're back. Now let's continue with our interview with Dan Carlin. Hmm. Excellent. Did you encounter any challenges that presented a negative impact? Like, for example, did the 2008 recession really set things back for you or any other thing that presented a, a real negative challenge? No, we haven't. We never saw any backward steps ourselves. I don't know what anybody else's experience is like, but I, for I, you know, it would have been hard, I think, too, if you consider the growth curve of the audience. I mean, theoretically, even if you were not making as good content or you were somehow falling off the pace, one would think, at least off the top of my head, that that would be compensated for by the amazing increase in the number of potential listeners out there. So so I don't know about anybody else's experience, but for us, uh, it's always, now there was a faster and slower growth at times. It speeds up, it slows down. We hit those mesas like we talked about, but there were never any like backward steps or the audience didn't. I mean, the hardest challenge that we've faced, I think maybe just guessing here off the top of my head and the whole time we've been doing this was there was a, uh, a numbers scandal, a, a download scandal about a year and a half ago. I'm not going to get too deeply into it, but but it messed up a bunch of people in the industry because, you know, when I was in uh, radio and in television, they had two competing services that purported to show you how many people were watching your broadcast or listening to your show. One was Nielsen and the other was Arbitron. But none of those services ever promised to be actually accurate per se. They were better at showing you broad trends. So when we started podcasting, I always thought that one of the great things about the medium was I couldn't tell you exactly how many people were listening, but usually I could give you a minimum number. I could say at least this many people have downloaded the file. Well, after that numbers scandal, I no longer even feel good about that. So the biggest hit we ever took was once upon a time thinking we had some outrageously high number of listeners, which, you know, I was talking to other podcasters at the time, and we were all very suspicious because uh, you weren't seeing the same patterns in other ways. It wasn't being uh, it wasn't manifesting in any other way other than the download numbers you were. you were. So but so when the news came out, 
it didn't hurt us as much, but there were a bunch of podcasters that were significantly hurt because they went, went and sold ads based on those numbers. The, the larger part for all of us, though, is I think it destroyed this, what was probably always a fantasy, that there was ever any way to really know how many people were listening. Um, so to me, the biggest challenge for us, though, I think was that if for no other reason than if you think you have twice as many, I'll just throw twice as many out there, listeners as you do, and then you find out you don't, it's going to be a long time until you hit numbers that seem impressive to you again. <laughs> it's gonna, you have to double your numbers before you, you're at sure. where you thought you were before. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're like, oh, man. That's right. Even big numbers look small again. after that. Yeah. You thought you were king of the hill, but you were just king of like a dirt pile. Well, we were actually still it it didn't affect anybody in terms of their relative power in the medium, but it's (laughs) it's a very different number to say you have twenty five million listeners versus you have eight, you know? Still says something to your ego. <laughs> um, it, that, that's the silly part. You start thinking yeah. how silly it is at that point. All yeah. that matters is that it's successful, and that's all we care about. Excellent. Well, what would you, Dan, what would you like to see from history podcasting in the future? Things that other history podcasters could do, or maybe just ways that you would like to push forward the genre? I don't have any thoughts on other people, and I never have. I, To me, this is an artistic endeavor like painting your own painting. And so, I mean, I don't even feel like I have... I wasn't going to say a right, that's too strong a word, but I I want you to paint your painting the way you want to paint your painting for the audience you want to paint for. I, I don't have any, you know, I have my own hands full still to this day with everything in my own plate. So when you say, what do you want to, I just want to do better work. Um, that's always what I'm trying to do is just to do better work. Uh, and, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't. And when, and when you do succeed, of course, the only problem is then you've raised the bar that you then have to try to exceed again. But that's the age old artistic challenge that artists have, have dealt with since time immemorial. So, and what every other podcaster deals with as well. So, uh, but, but like I said, we have our hands full with ourselves and we're always trying to, uh, do a little better on this end. Sure. Any current projects that you're working on right now that you would like our audience to know about? Uh, no, because I can't tell you, but I certainly have some things out there. And that and that's the Come biggest challenge. No, that's the biggest challenge for us, really, and for a lot of other podcasters too, which is um, you know, you you as a rule, you try to work as hard as you can on these podcasts, which generally means putting in all the extra time you have, whatever it might be. So then what happens? If you're working to maximum output and somebody offers you something to do because of the podcast, in addition to the podcast, where's that extra time come from? And so that becomes the biggest challenge is how to incorporate some of the opportunities that come because of your podcast, things that will, if they work, actually help your podcast, promote them, uh, expose them to more people. And how do you take advantage of those things without taking enough time from what's really the golden goose in this whole equation? I mean, Joe Rogan told me once, and it's a great piece of advice for everybody, don't ever give up the podcast. That's the golden goose. That's what brings all the other opportunities. So don't don't go off chasing one of these subsidiary opportunities and, and kill the golden goose. But it's easier said than done if the golden goose was taking up all your time to begin with. So that's the hardest challenge for us is uh, once upon a time, there were no opportunities and a lot of time to work on the podcast. Now there are a lot of opportunities, but they're all because of the podcast and you still have to have time available to do the podcast. So, uh, though, but you know, those are all wonderful, good problems to have. And it's a sign of the advanced state of the industry right now that we do have them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, how about this? Do you want to tell our listeners what the best place is to get your hardcore history? What's the URL or where should they go? Well, uh, the old shows uh, we sell, the new shows for the last, you know, we keep them free for a couple of years. Those are available everywhere. I think just Google my name. And <laughs> if you want to get the old shows, <laughs> yeah. though, that we, they're available on our website. They're available on iTunes and more places to come. Um and uh, and listen, uh, you know, we operate and have always operated on the try it for free. And if you like it, send us what you think it was worth sort of deal. Uh, and that's how we operate now. And that's how a lot of podcasters who've been around since 2005 operate. So, um, you know, find a show, listen to it. If you like it, send us a buck. Excellent. Well, Dan Carlin, it has been a real treat and an honor having you on the show. Thank you so much. Hey, it was nice to ask me and I appreciate it. Let me know when it comes out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember to check out our Patreon feed for the rest of the interviews and a whole lot more. You can also find this interview ad-free along with all the other interviews from our History of History podcasting episode on our Patreon feed, where it is free to the public. You can toss a buck our way if you want to support what we're doing and the new show that we're developing on the history of sex, covering gender, sex, and quirk across cultures and throughout history, or you can just enjoy the interviews your choice. We will be back in about a month with another bonus episode for you featuring a new dead idea. This one comes courtesy of guest host Neil Eckhart, who's going to talk to us about millenarianism, the medieval belief that the end times will arrive with the year 1000. That's right, we're going to be partying like it's 999. Neil Eckhart is the host of the show War and Conquest, so check out his show in the meantime. We will see you in about a month. This episode is released under a Creative Commons attribution license, which means you can repost this, slice it up, take clips from it, and so on, as long as you give credit to Dead Ideas. All right, everybody, I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm -hmm.